0: Good evening. Welcome, everyone. We're thrilled to have you all here tonight joining us for Challenging Conversations, banned in Challenge Books, presented by Sphere Education Initiatives. I'm Alan Carey, the Director of Sphere Education Initiatives. It's a pleasure to have you all joining us for tonight's conversation. This is the second in our ongoing series of conversations about difficult and challenging topics to bring up in the classroom or about the classroom, as so often is the case with the topic tonight. We're thrilled to be joined by uh, one of the foremost experts on the topic of banned and challenge books, and the way in which these issues are sweeping the country. For tonight's conversation, I'm going to give you a quick introduction to uh, what we'll be covering, how to expect the evening, and then to talk a little bit about uh, how you can be involved in our conversation tonight. Uh, we'll be joined first by Jonathan Friedman, who'll be offering uh, an introductory remarks on the conversation, followed by some questions from me in Q&A to get your questions involved in the conversation. want to encourage you all early and often post those questions in the chat and send them our way. We'll incorporate those into our theme throughout the evening. And I'm very pleased that the second part of our conversation tonight will be uh, my colleague, Elise Alter from Sphere Education Initiatives, joined by Stephanie Hasty, uh, one of our alumni and a teacher from Missouri, to talk about uh, new resources that we've created around civil discourse in the ELA classroom, a unit that we just rolled out that you can start to think about how to incorporate some of the themes that we're talking about tonight and find a way to really bring that forward in your classroom. So without further ado then, let me go ahead and introduce tonight's uh, keynote speaker. Jonathan Friedman is the Director of Free Expression and Education Programs at PEN America. He oversees research, advocacy, and education related to academic freedom educational gag orders, book bans, and general free expression in schools, colleges, and universities. An interdisciplinary scholar by training, Friedman has served as lead author on Pan America's many recent reports, including Banned in the USA, the growing movement to censor books, and schools. He's additionally steered the production of Pan America's Campus Free Speech Guide. He regularly provides commentary for news media about educational censorship, has published op-eds for CNN, The Washington Post, The Hill, The Daily Beast, New York Daily News, in Inside Higher Ed. Jonathan, we're thrilled to have you joining us here tonight. Uh, Without further ado, let me turn the floor over to you. Tell us a little bit more about the situation on the ground when it comes to uh, banned and censored books and uh, more of what you've been writing about lately.
1: Thank you, uh, Alan, and hi, everyone. It's great to be here with you. And uh, I really wanna make a lot of time for questions because this is a topic that is not easy. You know, there's a lot of ins and outs of it, but I wanna just start with um, just saying, you know, how I came to this conversation and some of the things that I think about when I talk about these issues with a community of educators. Um, So first and foremost is that, you know, I've been doing work on freedom of speech for the past five years. And the crux of that work was originally in higher education, dealing with college campuses where the valence of the issue of free speech politically was tilted in a totally different way from the issue of book bans that we have, uh, you know, seen you know spiral and grow and spread in the past uh 2 years so uh, you know in an interesting way i i spent some time thinking about some of the really challenging issues around free speech that have been raised from, you know, progressive activists, um, hate speech, uh, speech that upsets people or offends people, uh, calls to cancel plays or uh, art uh, that some of which you know, have been even in the news recently, uh, academic freedom issues uh, concerning professors. Um, and as a literary organization with an interest in human rights uh, and, you know, intellectual freedom, democracy, liberty, uh, etc. Uh, Penn is a very um, distinct organization. We've been doing this work for 100 years. This is our centenary year. Uh, And over that time, um, we have tried to really... Uh, Be quite principled about freedom of expression about um, free expression and the um, cultural exchange of ideas and information and art, even in times of war, Um, and um, a lot of that kind of background that history um, uh, standing with Salman Rushdie, for example, in the face of uh, the fatwa, um, you know, supporting Tony Morrison in efforts to restrict her books in the 1980s, a lot of that history uh, informs and is still part of the way that we do our work today. Uh, so in my role, I still do oversee issues on college campuses and uh, the issues surrounding efforts to introduce new laws to uh, prohibit certain topics in schools, uh, new laws to um, uh, ban books or you know restrict or review or uh, vet books in schools, uh, and then also um, have been monitoring for the past two years. Uh, You know the growth of what I can only describe as a movement, and that was in our title of our report that we put out last year, uh, the growing movement to censor books in schools, and it it is a growing movement and that's how it's best understood, Um, how do I know this what is my you know um, insight there. Uh, In in 2021, we started getting notifications from a few authors uh, that the issue of book bans was coming up on their radar with a new intensity and and a degree of surprise. Now, book banning is not, um, it's sort of a, a phenomenon that's Basically, I don't know. I, I don't want to say always, but for forever. But long, you know, book banning is a is a constant. It's kind of always there. There are efforts from people to from people from left and right to remove books um, in schools, in public libraries, uh, to kind of say that something offends them so much that they want to stop other people from being able to access it entirely. So that is not new to the last two years. But until only really in the 1970s, 1980s was the last time that we saw something that was as concerted and and at, at the kind of scope and scale of what we're seeing right now. Um, and so what's different is that, you know, say five or six years ago, you might have a school district where a parent uh, finds a book that, you know, their kid brought home, they're upset about it, they bring a challenge to a school, and they want to talk about whether that was age appropriate, and engage the school in a dialogue, you know, that dialogue happens, maybe a teacher is involved, it's a kind of one on one situation, occasionally, it turns into a media story, occasionally, it turns into um, a kind of ad hoc or outside of pro- process uh removal of a book um and then it you know it becomes a book ban and, and you know pen was commenting on it other organizations in 2021 this changed from a situation that was really relatively isolated for example you know one you know this book is ch- a tony morrison book to give that example is challenged in georgia okay and a book um by an entirely different author judy bloom is being char- targeted you know someone wants to remove it in montana you know that that was essentially what what it was a kind of steady stream but really quite isolated and distinct fact specific uh, stories what changed in 2021 and then really ramped up through 2022 and is still part of us of things going on right now is that this this uh, something new emerged in which um people were showing up to school board meetings in at first in Texas and then in qu- very quickly in Utah and in other parts of the country um, um that um uh were coming with lists of books. They had, it wasn't just one book, and it wasn't necessarily a book that their that they had read themselves or that their child had brought home from school. Often it was a book that they learned about was in a school uh, from a group on Facebook or from a web page. And sometimes people were coming to school boards uh, and uh, upset about a book. Only to discover that book wasn't in that school. So there's been a range of uh, of, of challenges and complaints about school about books in schools. Uh, even in the past two years, many of the book ban stories that hit the news aren't actually necessarily the same. So book banning is not one you know distinct phenomenon. Really, we're talking about a range of ways in which um, uh, in, information and ideas and books are restricted. Much in the same way when we talk about let's say academic freedom on campuses, we're talking about. Um, not just, you know, what a professor can say, but, on you know, in social media, we're talking about what they write, what they research, what they teach, uh, we're talking about a range of things. And so there's a lot of, similarly, there's a lot of um, context, that I'm sure many of you know, working in schools, that go it goes into and surrounds books in libraries. So what, what we first started in the first phase of this, it was the surprising coal, coalition, collation, assembly of these long lists that were the same. So all of a sudden, you know, basically in a matter of weeks, you had a list of a hundred books in Texas that was being challenged in multiple parts of Texas, and then about you know fifty of those books were appearing also on a list in Missouri, and then thirty of those books were being challenged in New Jersey. And kind of overnight, the number of local places in which the same phenomenon was popping up just grew rapidly. And there's some pretty you know consistent phenomena. You have um, you know, sometimes a group that's organized locally emailing a school board specific book removed. Sometimes it's a school administrator who decides they want to remove a set of books. Uh, Sometimes it's politicians who are uh, actively either pushing legislation or just sending letters or calling like a local school because they want to remove a book um, uh, using like their office to put a kind of like extra, I don't know, extra official pressure on a local school district. Um, And um, in many places in the first, you know, year of this, um, many school districts, you know, reacted consistent with their policies. They said, You know what? Thank you for your challenge. Here's the forms you have to file, fill out. Let's uh, have a process, we'll have a committee. And basically, most of the time, where districts have committees and people get together and they read books and they think books and they talk about books, the most of those cases have been resolved more peaceably than in the situations where um where a superintendent decides, you know what, I'm just gonna remove this list of 50 books without talking to anybody. Uh, I'm gonna just pull them from shelves immediately. We're gonna put books in back rooms of schools and require permission slips, um, or we're gonna kind of secretly suspend access to books without anybody knowing. And, And all of that has been happening. So that's the story of the past year right school districts, uh, par- you know these parents school districts sometimes citizen reactions. Um, you know, people who have been in the news saying they attended a webinar online and it ended with somebody with them asking for a volunteer to challenge these six books in the local school district and saying you know what I'll do it for you. Um, because I believe in what you're you're telling me in this meeting. So whereas historically a lot of it's not just the case that it was always or never like this in the sense of people hearing about books and getting angry even if they might not have children in the school um, but that that you know, we've never seen this at this kind of level where you know there are now over 50 probably close to 100 local groups in multiple states around the country a lot of them sprung up extremely fast and none of them existed two years ago there was no polit- there was this this These groups didn't exist. So how did they materialize so fast in so many places? There's different theories about that. I do think a degree of uh, grassroots mobilization and frustration at schools uh, in general has been very much a part of the post the COVID moment and then the post COVID uh, uh, moment, as I'm sure many of you experienced. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's different today, so heading into like what I would call now year two and a half here, certainly year two, um, how has this changed? Is that all of those dynamics that I was just describing are still happening there's just other stuff also happening too. And it's the new stuff where you start to see this kind of ratcheting up. So for example, it's one thing if you're a school board and you're reacting to an upset citizen, 10 upset citizens, or I think it was in Michigan. I don't know if we have anybody in Michigan here. I think it was Dearborn, Michigan. There was like hundreds of upset citizens at one school board meeting. Okay. But still, that's the interaction. That's really different from the state has passed a new law that puts new requirements on all the teachers or librarians or media specialists or institutes new policies that essentially are designed to have the effect of censoring books. Um, Florida's laws have gotten the most attention right now in the news and I'm happy to elaborate on some of those if people like, but actually some of the other states are really um, interesting as well. Utah uh, has a law, Missouri has a law, Tennessee has a law, that has not yet fully been implemented, but in the Tennessee law, uh, there is a political committee uh, that is going to evaluate any appeals from any district level book challenges. So, you know, a a school board in Knoxville or Nashville or um, uh, Chattanooga, if people can't resolve whether the book should be in the school district locally, it's going to go to this politically appointed body who will make a decision about the book for everywhere in the state. So it's going to basically move toward state approved lists, which You know, on one hand, there's a kind of rationale for that. States make curricula, et cetera. But on the other, there's always been a kind of recognition that a school district in rural Alabama is not the same as a school district in, I don't know, um, you know, central Atlanta, right? Like we can, we understand that there's different dynamics. People, the people who live there are different in terms of their identities. They may wanna read different books, etc. And particularly when it comes to censoring books, right? We have to think about who is using that um, kind of mechanism to try and remove books that other people um, that may not, they may not ideologically agree with, you know, couldn't access. And, and it is the case, um, so that's the law in Tennessee. We're seeing more laws. And, and I should say on that point, it is the case that we have seen all kinds of books now challenged. So in year two of this, this really, you know, has had some pretty distinct elements Um CRT and the kind of national conversation about race as one of them, um, sexuality as the second one, what is sex, sex education, um, books that have sex or romantic relationships in them, um, but also like educational books about puberty. The third being books about uh, gender and sexual orientation. Um, and then a fourth, which is just kind of like books about, I would say activism, changing the world, etc. And so any book that particularly hits many of these at once is the books that are at the top of the band books list. Um, but it, in, in a lot of cases, the mood of censorship, okay, is what we have to start to understand is setting in everywhere. And so it's not so even necessarily so much about, a book that someone challenges and now we have to get rid of, or even a law that's telling me I have to review my books. It's the the fear that is now being engendered in everyone's minds about how we talk and how we read uh, and how we make things accessible to other people uh, to the point where it is a lot more tempting, I would say, for most teachers and librarians, even in, you know, let's say blue states or other parts, um, um uh, uh, you know, even in other parts of the country, um, it's, it's, it's not hard to imagine that if you are choosing between, you know, putting a book on a shelf as a librarian that's going to get you in any kind of trouble or get people yelling at you versus not buying that book or not putting it out, well, you're not going to choose that book. And... um I think that's 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 the part of this that's the hardest to measure. But when I talk to teachers and librarians, that's the part that I'm hearing the most, is that it's actually not necessarily about the things that you can count or track or report on in the news. It's the stuff that's the feeling right in the air and how that's having this kind of uh, insidious effect at a very minute level. Um, the other thing is that not only is this moving from laws and not only is it becoming more insidious, in some cases, one of the um, claims that's been made a lot is, This is about parents rights and it's just about schools um uh uh and um that the um answer is that we should just have schools have limited libraries and public libraries is where people can go but what is happening uh in this year past six months or so is a lot more challenges in um public Libraries. So this isn't just about public schools. I don't know if we have anyone in Louisiana here. There's a lot in um uh there's a lot in Louisiana happening with public libraries, but just in, in other kind of spots all over the country. I would say right now the stories I'm hearing about public libraries remind me of how this looked in public schools two years ago, which was like kind of little pockets and little whispers. And so the question is, is that going to intensify as well? And then you have to say, well, they pushed the books out of the school. And they're pushing the books out of the library. Where are we going to get them? And people say, well, Amazon or other places. But there are other kinds of proposals on the table to, uh, and very easily could be introduced to restrict the sale of these materials um, and the acquisition even in in other um, in other places. And, you know, speaking as somebody who watches laws get proposed, I can tell you there's a, I can talk about this as well if there's questions and want to get into it. But there's a whole lot of laws on the table just right now that uh, impact the availability of information in pretty stark Uh, ways. Um, And they're all over the country. This is not just a Florida thing. It's not just a, I don't know, um, Utah thing. They're in a lot of places. Um, I think the other piece of it that's important for people to realize, and I'll just pause after I say this, when I say like all kinds of books are now being um, swept up in this. So I regularly see books being pulled in schools that people would be quite surprised to see, you know, books like a Berenstein Bears book or uh, a book in the news in Florida this month uh, about Roberto Clemente or um, a book by Michelle Obama or a book um, about drawing and reading. A book by Reader's Digest was pulled from shelves in Missouri about how to draw. I've seen a graphic novel adaptation of the Gettysburg Address pulled because somebody thought that maybe some of the drawings in the book were inappropriate. I've seen the Bible pulled in a few places um, and gosh, you know, and that's just sort of like what's on the tip of my tongue in this moment, because I spend most days, you know, really just swimming in uh, reports of censorship uh, of books. Um, So that's the state of things. And... um, I thought now maybe I might talk, I talked a little bit about, you know, just what's driving this is, is, it's very clear that an element of this, you know, it's not to say that the people who wanna remove books in these in every district in the country, every person who's going to a school board meeting and wants to remove a book, et cetera. I don't think that people necessarily are uh, acting disingenuously. I don't think necessarily that people do not have the convictions that they are displaying, but there is certainly an element of this where this didn't kind of just happen overnight by accident. Uh, there seems to have been, there's a degree of organization which you can even find on online in um, a degree of coordination and degree of, well, just rapid copying. So um, very speedy mimicry of like what happened at an Idaho uh, school board, you know, last week to what's happening this week in Florida. And you have to kind of question, um, why are they targeting the same books or um, why are they taking the same tactics? Also, the um, there's very clear documented interactions between some of the groups in some states who have uh, pushed for school censorship and some of the politicians who have pushed for it. So there's clearly a political element that's that's somewhat undeniable um, in the whole in the whole the whole either. So to answer some of these questions, um, just uh, uh, that have come in just so far in the chat, just to say speak to a few of them in a very general sense. Um, there are books challenged by people on the left. Um, I hear about these, you know, pretty frequently. What's the difference right now in this current moment is that librarians or school administrators, when those are coming up, are tending not to remove the books in the ways that they are tending to remove the books uh, uh, from, from, I don't know, from the right or from this movement. Um, So for example, a uh, book by Abigail Schreer, which is um, seen as an anti-trans book, has been challenged in many libraries, but I don't know of a single library that was carrying it that actually pulled the book, though some libraries did form committees and talk about it. And for some librarians, who, you know, maybe they're, I don't know, identify as trans themselves or are trying to be supportive of diverse identities. Um, You know, they they do sometimes feel a very strong pull to remove these books that people tell them quite earnestly feel very harmful to who they are and their identities. But nonetheless, I have seen the decision to keep those books. Um, In California, about two and a half years ago, there was also a case there where a district decided that, Um, they could no longer have teach any books in schools that had the N word in them. So it was a blanket ban on any books with the N word. Um, and actually, interestingly, some black students in the district organized against it and said it was going to deprive them of the opportunity to read books about, um, you know, their heritage, uh, that this would just mean we won't teach Tony Morrison or Maya Angelou or James Baldwin or Martin Luther King. Um, but nonetheless, that ban, to my knowledge, is still in place in a school district in, in uh, California. So th- those cases do happen. Um uh and they just you know they're not either not being reported on much or they're just not it's not that the challenges necessarily aren't happening but they're not resulting in the removals in in anywhere near uh the same measure um but you do occasionally see those calls and you know i I do see calls to in particular like cancel um events on campuses like plays and art that's been a lot in the news in the past two or three months so you know, I I really don't want to give the impression that censorship is, um, you know, the resort of only one side of the political spectrum because it's certainly not. Um, In terms of, um, uh, you know, how does this work and, you know, what is the ideal? And then I think we'll go to um, Q&A. I think it is possible for parents to be involved in schools. I think it's vital. Um, I think that there are, there exist real mechanisms for parents who want to get involved in schools to do so, to join PTAs, to schedule meetings with teachers. I think that there are, uh, and there has been value in curriculum being made available to the public. But what I'm concerned about is that some of the policies that are on the table right now, and again, the kind of idea in the air, is that you know any parent in a classroom should have the right to decide not only what their child reads, but what their child learns, and um, how all the children in class should learn, and so instead of you know thinking of the public school as serving like a kind of like diverse public that must encounter and reckon with difficult topics and challenge people and kind of teach the values of you know open inquiry, freedom of speech, liberty, uh, intellectual freedom, academic freedom, all these things that have really been the hallmarks of American society, even in kind of turbulent times before. um, Instead, we seem to be suggesting that, you know, if I don't like a book, I should be able to get it removed from school. And if you don't like a book, you should be able to get that book removed from school. But the problem is that when 50 people all go to get rid of the books or topics that they don't want their kids learning in schools, we're only one step away from the entire notion of the public school essentially being unable to function. I don't know any teacher who could... Um, teach their class in such an anodyne way with regard to history, religion, um, sex ed, cultural difference, international history, who might not in some moment or another have friction with a student or their parent. And so I think it's really important. And there are opportunities for growth. Again, for a conservative parent to say, I think this teacher is misrepresenting or saying negative things about Republicans, and it makes me uncomfortable, and I I wish they wouldn't say that, or, um, you know, a Black parent on the progressive side to say to a teacher, you know, I understand why you're trying to talk about racism, but could you, I don't know, think about not asking the one black student in the class to stand up and talk about all the racism they've experienced in life, et cetera. And so um, I think there has to be ways for us to talk about these things, but it is best going to be resolved through community conversations that start at a level of respect and um, dialogue. And what's happening just is so so unlike that. What's happening is, you know, since significant demands that are unrelenting um, and basically putting so much pressure on school districts and teachers and librarians that they're leaving the profession or feel they have no choice but to just, you know, censor whatever it is anybody's upset about. So um, I'm going to pause there, throw it over to Alan, see what other questions were in the chat here that I may have missed. So I was just picking up some that were coming in.
0: Jonathan, thank you so much for that introduction and conversation. I thought it was fantastic. You covered a lot of ground very quickly. I wanted to hit a couple of points uh, that I think will help bring some clarity to some of the things that you've already mentioned. One of the things I think is interesting, uh, historically, when we talk about things like book bans or censorship, it tends to refer to things like the government prohibiting the availability of things broadly in society. So that book cannot be published, you go to jail if you publish that book, or censorship, you cannot have that movie or that piece of artwork made available in the public. as you've talked about the issue, you guys use a bit more of an expansive de- definition of thinking about book banning and censorship. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that uh, and thinking about why more broadly thinking about, uh, say for example, something like the prohibition of a particular book being taught in say, an elementary school curriculum fits into how you all would think about book banning and censorship.
1: Yeah, um, that's a great question. So. Um, a lot of our thinking about this is influenced by the way people have thought about censorship historically, as well as the Supreme some of the Supreme Court and other judicial decisions and we have an FAQ on on banned books and book bans and our definitions. That would be that it that, that goes into some more detail and has some really um, useful li- uh, links that I think will be very interesting to people um, so fundamentally the. The thing that we have to remember is really that when we're talking about book bannings and freedom to read, we're really anchoring it very strongly in free speech. And when we're talking about free speech, we're talking about the First Amendment and we're talking about constitutional rights. And so that is the basis upon which the Supreme Court in 1982 took up a case called uh, Pico v. um, uh, Island Trees. It was a school district in um, Long Island. And the facts of the case essentially were somewhat similar to things that we're seeing right now. A school board didn't like certain terms and ideas that were in books. They got a list of books from someone. They decided they had a committee read the books. The committee wanted to keep them. The school board said, no, we still don't like them and we're you know, banning them or prohibiting them. Um, And in the decision uh, that that happened in that case, some of the key ideas were that the school library has a kind of unique significance and role. It's somewhat different from curriculum, that it is a place where, you know, students can learn about the world. It functions a little bit more like an open marketplace. And although the, the courts didn't make a decision about how books ought to go into schools, what they did say is that the constitution does not permit the official suppression of ideas. And these are acts by school boards as, because school boards are elected officials, they are government agents, they are the government, um, they are enacting official suppression of ideas in that circumstance. So um, that, and now that has to do with uh, libraries, right? So beyond that school, there has been clear um, uh, kind of leanings by the school, by school, by the courts to say there's greater leeway when it comes to curriculum um but for us this is also about um uh process and this is really critical so school boards s- schools school districts states uh te- groups of teachers right they set curricula they use their expertise to say this is the co- this is the stuff that we think as experts you know ought to be taught and ought to be learned and what you have happening is that that kind of professional discretion that has been historically trusted is being kind of trampled on. So you have a situation where somebody says, I don't want that book in this classroom. And they say, you know what, you're right. Let's not teach, um, I don't know, let's not teach the grapes of wrath or of mice and men, or let's not teach something else. Um, And uh, so what we have done in our work in our categories is we have tried to distinguish between cases that are uh, bans in curriculum, bans in classrooms versus banned in libraries as a way to help people understand that It's not exactly the same thing, but nonetheless, it is a form of um, restriction, especially when it's being done again without process. So, even in that case, let's say somebody most curriculum in most school districts actually does have a period of open comment. We're adopting this new uh, materials. People can come in and comment on this for a period of time. So, it's you know, people who are invested in this. Uh, and really concerned, you know, significantly, they do have an opportunity to come in and voice concerns. But what's happening so much right now is, you know, somebody sees something, they're upset about it, and then the school district just kind of gives into it. And there's not much consideration in some cases about, like, well, what does this mean for students? Um, to, to give a, an example from Florida, there was a group in Florida who saw a PowerPoint in a sixth grade sex ed program. Uh, curriculum program they did not like a diagram in on one of the slides that identified parts of the body right so this is just this is a neutral slide showing you know this is what this is this is the name for that this is the name for this um and you know people said you know what can we have that slide without those certain words on there that we don't like basically um and so and the school district took it seriously like they were going to seriously not teach young people the names for their body parts um, because it made some group of adults upset. And it's it's really not clear in most cases how large is that group, right? Is that everyone in the district? In most cases, it's actually like one to at most maybe five or even 10 people. Um, but in actually a ton of cases, uh, it's just one, okay? So you have one person, sometimes a parent, sometimes not, and they're having that incredible impact. Now, some of the other stuff that's happening involving classroom libraries is a totally different uh, arena from school libraries and curriculum. Classroom libraries are this arena where teachers for a long time, um, actually, interestingly, because of disinvestment in public education, have some, money, some school classrooms, you do get books that like a set of books somebody's bought um, for, you know, maybe we bought it for every school in the, in the building or every classroom in the district, et cetera, but a lot of teachers collections in their classrooms are built up over time right they're like these like professional collections that some teachers have been curating for 10 years and the reason particularly in like first grade they do this is because um literacy depends on kind of quick acquisition and and being interested in books and so most kids in like kindergarten first grade they read like five books a week you know and so what's happening right now is the panic around this idea that classroom libraries that somebody other than the teacher who's maybe been teaching for 20 years um, has approved that book has led to situations where school the school district in Florida has said they're closing their classroom libraries and their school libraries until they can review every book and they have 1.6 million books to review. Um, They're two weeks in they've reviewed about five or six thousand at that rate it will take 10 years and they've said they're not going to put any books back until they're all reviewed which I don't understand how this is possibly gonna work. But so it's that kind of like extremism um, that we have felt it's really important for people to understand. Like, yes, it is true that um, people, when they first see the word book ban, they think, okay, uh, that means, you know, nobody in society can get it. Like a book ban in Belarus right now, there is a ban on selling 1984. You cannot buy it in Belarus. That is obviously different from a school district removing a book um uh even banning it let's say but you can buy it down the street but the point is to show the kind of range of efforts at censorship so that we can we can measure how they're getting worse how they're changing what is their particular valence and almost everywhere um one of the tactics that's used a lot is you don't if you cannot get the book removed you start with getting the book on a specific shelf you start with getting restricted, you start to remove the books from the public sphere. So you kind of like are just like edging them out slowly. And so a lot of the ways in which, um, that's a lot of what we've seen actually in the last year is those sort of more subtle things that do still impact um, book access. The final point I'll make is this, um, the the current like courts thinking about students very clearly says that students have first amendment rights. And it very clearly says that, um, um, those rights extend to students right in schools um, and that the library is a special place for those rights in particular. And even in one case where a school district a few years ago in Arkansas um, took a Harry Potter book and they put a permission slip, you needed a permission slip to take this book. That case was determined that that was an, an act of official suppression um, that it violated that student's First Amendment right. That was one book, one permission slip, um, and it was determined that that was an infringement. And as part of that case, if you look at the decision, they said um, that just because you can buy the book elsewhere, essentially, an infringement on your rights—you know, just because your rights aren't infringed down the street doesn't mean they aren't infringed right now. And that even a minimal infringement under First Amendment rules, you know, is an infringement, right? And so. You know, we might say like it seems reasonable that a parent should be able to do some of the things that people are pushing for right now. But just in terms of the framework of how this has been interpreted before, the United States has an extremely high bar for freedom of speech, of which the freedom to access information is a part. So it, it's challenging to figure out how to square this. But I'll say like a group of people in a school, in a school, librarians, teachers deciding, you know what, let's read a new book next year. Let's not read this book anymore. Or a process by which people are, um, you know, upset about a book that they kind of talk about, they work about, they maybe they vote democratically to decide to like, make a book not on a reading list, but you can still get it in the library. Like those are situations that to me aren't book bans. And But situations where the process is being ignored, where there's no transparency or accountability, where different stakeholders aren't part of the process, even when it results in more minimal infringements, we've chosen to talk about that in terms of book banning, particularly because it is very clearly the first step on the way to more restrictive um, uh, policy um, solutions, policy suggestions.
0: You've started to talk about this already. And I wanted to build off of it a little bit further. A handful of the questions that we've got in deal with the question of how these kinds of things be decided. So within the context of thinking about specifically The K-12 setting, whether that's at the the level of curricular decisions and classroom choices to the level of book inclusion or not inclusion, and often this is framed within the context of questions like, uh, what role ought parents, for example, be able to have in these kinds of conversations? From your point of view, what are some of the sort of best practices that should inform this kind of approach, and what are some of the kinds of things that, well... Perhaps they may come underneath the cloak of things that are expressed as a genuine concern, actually lead to a kind of culture of censorship and limiting of speech that is problematic.
1: You know, the the thing that's occurred to me most in all of this is that the solution to a community of people who cannot agree on, let's say, how a material should be available, right? They're evenly divided, What would that group of people, what would be the solution? Okay. Would they err on, there's equal numbers. We're 20 people, 10 of us want the book available, 10 of us do not. What would we do? It's a really interesting question. What do we do? Do we err on the side of the 10 who do not want it? Or do we err on the side of the 10 who do? This comes up a lot with free speech. Borderline cases, edge cases, cases where you know it seems like we should have a law in place that stops people from um, um, uh, 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 that, that stops people from being able to say something or express something, but the courts have always been concerned about how any such law could be twisted. So when they have made exceptions uh, under the First Amendment, they have always tried to be extremely specific and narrowly tailored. And part of the argument, also and or consideration, I should say, is that if we censor or, or restrict books in one way or restrict information or speech, whatever, can people get it elsewhere? So all of that you know, ought to be part of our like consideration, but mostly we would say that these 10 people ought to work something out. We would say there has to be a solution here. And when push comes to shove, they would probably do one of two things. Either A, feel that it was better to have more inclusion than less of what people were interested in, because over time, right, if you, let's say that 10 versus 10, every time we get rid of the thing, well, over you know ten cases, that's ten books nobody's reading, and and um, that's where that would go. Or the alternative system is we would find somebody who we pay as a professional expert to work with young people, to be familiar with what it is that young people are interested in reading, and say that they should have some discretion to decide what comes into libraries. And so I feel like the part, the way we're going to end this current like moment in all of this is like, you know, if only we had somebody who had that job. And and that's sort of where this is going to go, you know, and I really do fear the ways in which This whole movement has really undermined faith in teachers uh, and librarians, some of whom, you know, many librarians are quite ethically committed to the notion of circulation, they want books in libraries that people want to read. And so if the librarian is saying these three new books will be of interest to young to to the students of this age group, based on the, the things that they were reading already. There is a real question about how much that librarian should not order those books to appease, you know, one parent versus let's say five parents who do want it or 10 kids who do want it, et cetera. And particularly when it comes to things, you know, just to talk about one of the more controversial areas of this, like something like sex, um, you know, it is really difficult to figure out at what age, you know, books should talk about this for young people. Like this is not a new challenge for American society, but we really have to think about who in whose interest. We are serving when we restrict this information. You know, there's a bill in one state right now that would ban all sex ed in the state. Period. Um, and you know, there is this effort; it seems to sort of be just like kind of anti-information rather than pro, even at the detriment of you know information for people about their bodies and how they work that can quite literally prevent pregnancy, save lives. You know, allow people to have informed consent, um, give people the language to talk about sexual abuse, etc. And so you know in each of those cases who ought to be making that decision for that child is it you know really going to be solely up to that one parent alone to have such total dominion over everything that child might interact with in the world or you know is there a degree of understanding that we delegate some understanding and we accept some openness to information in society that's just always been part of american society so like we're you know very concerned right now about this book that is you know a a 300 page book and you know has one uh, page in which something sexual happens, but nope, we're not you know monitoring what's on social media or what's on television or what you might read in the newspaper you know it, so it, there's a real disconnect here and actually in a lot of cases, if the kids were reading that 300 page book, most teachers would see that as a real good thing for like a generation that's, you know, hooked on their phones, um, you know, desperately depressed, you know, where that everybody seems to agree books have a very important place in their lives in establishing literacy, critical thinking, in reading something in a book that changes your mind about something that opens you up to people who are different from yourselves that is good for, for for everyone, right? Like I think that's a really powerful and important thing um, for, for everyone. And so, um, uh, well, anyway, so in terms of how I think parents should be involved, yes, I think there ought to be opportunities for parents to see curriculum, to join boards, to be part of these discussions, but where that turns into, um, you know, a parent wants to stop a field trip to a play because it has a gay character for all students and then does, You know, that's where I think this starts to cross a line from, you know, one person's freedom encroaching on everybody else's.
0: So thinking about uh, something you've talked about a handful of times is the 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 dangerous trajectory that we're taking a look at with some of these kinds of efforts from what happened to be individual challenges or rarefied circumstances to a broader trend, many people involved, common lists, uh, what feels like at times a movement in this direction of engagement. It seems that we're we're coming up closer to a line that might look like, are we moving from the kinds of uh, decisions that get made about things like public schools and curriculum and libraries to something that moves further toward uh, broad violations of the First Amendment. It seems to be the case that the courts, broadly speaking, have been on the side of enforcing free speech mechanisms of encouraging and saying where these things make it to the courts. They're on the side of pushing for openness and availability of kinds of resources. Is that trend right, right? Are we, is there a hope to be seen in something like the courts and the mechanisms that the courts are providing for protections around these? Or are there, there are broader concerns that we should have around things like educational gag orders in encouraging bad actors and legislative or regulatory bodies to act in ways that start violating even more broadly something like the First Amendment?
1: I mean, I think we have to start with the point that there is an erosion of uh, of the ideal of freedom of speech, you know, kind of all over. And I was talking about that earlier with you know, free with campuses, etc. But that erosion is also among politicians in terms of the notion that there should be like a kind of li- in, in quite literally that, you know, no law should be made that abridges freedom of speech, right? And where is that line? Um, and so The biggest concern about the laws that I'm seeing all over is just how vague they are in terms of what they really mean and how that vagueness has had the most significant ripple. It's actually not um, a law that says, you know, you cannot talk about Christmas that is nearly as um, troubling as a law that says, you know, you cannot um, make students feel, tell students they should feel something or not feel something about who they are. You know, it's like, well, what could that be? And you have even situations in Oklahoma. Uh, I don't know if we have anyone in Oklahoma here. In Oklahoma, they had a school district where they um, basically downgraded the status and the accreditation of the um, uh, of a school district or even two school districts. But it simultaneously admitted that they didn't really do anything wrong. So it was like, it was a, it's very peculiar situations in which people and schools are being punished right now, and that's just adding to this kind of fear. Um, the other thing is that once we start to open up what had been a kind of democratic consensus more or less around free speech this has the opportunity this this has the potential to weaken like right now we see certain political valence in parts of the country but in terms of just the long term health of democracy we this could so easily be all every single law right now every single movement that you're seeing could so easily be turned on a dime just in terms of the current politics you know if tomorrow um the democratic governor of california said you know what we need to remove all books in schools that contain uh racist representations because it's undermining for our students of color and uh we don't want any teacher in florida in in california to say anything um, that might offend a student from a historically marginalized identity about American history. Um, or, you know, I've seen something, this was proposed by a Democrat in Arizona. It was something like that you could not include in curriculum anything denigrating about anybody based on, um, you know, who they were. And it would essentially mean like, you can't say na- Nazis are bad, or you can't, you know, say, you can't say certain things about slavery or even in American history. And so, um, you know, the the, I don't think that people are thinking enough about just how opening this door could lead to doors that are just, you know, we're sort of end up in a tit for tat. This person comes into power. Now we can't say all these things. This person comes into power. Now we can't say all those things. We can't teach. We can't read, etc. You know, um, it would be just as easy to fan a movement around the country to uh, remove every copy of Huckleberry Finn that ever is printed in the United States, or um, I don't know, name some other book. Or to say that textbooks um, must have a certain quotient of representation of uh, diversity in them in order to be sold or taught in schools. Um, that cert- you know, like so we we want to retain a degree of autonomy for educational institutions that from the political state, from like the politics of the game of the day, from the tit for tat, and historically. Most of this actually has been, although there are times, you know, this isn't the first time when this has been so politicized, but there has been a kind of starting point of a degree of respect. We might be one political party, but we understand that superintendents in our state or experts in history. Ought to be part of the way that we create curriculum, and so we kind of work together, or we understand that higher education has historically uh, been somewhat autonomous, but we're concerned about the experiences of conservative students on campuses so let's work together. Let's study the issue for a year and next year we'll come up with some policy solutions, you know it was collaboration right now we're it's just so much culture war. Um, that it you, it's so hard to have any nuance on any of these issues because everything turns into my side, your side, into um um who's who's censoring whom. And um, you know, right now these laws have been written to say, you know, any parent can challenge anything in a classroom and then it's the parent's right to stop the class from reading it. I mean, that could be used in a whole lot more ways than just getting rid of books about gender. And um I don't know at what point people get so frustrated with this that they just turn this into um, that counter movement.
0: It's been said by many commentators over the years, never pass a law that you'd be afraid of your political opponents using against you. And I think that so very well fits in this kind of situation that as we're seeing more active, we'll call it activism on the part of politicians in one direction, it creates a dangerous precedent that may be applied against others in a way that they would be very unhappy about when others came to power in the similar circumstances. It's a, a very dangerous sort of thing. We have about 10 minutes left on this side of the conversation. And I think uh, to work our way through that, I wanted to ask you two related uh, but slightly distinct questions. One is to think about, broadly speaking, where do we go from here? That is, what is a sort of thoughtful path on getting back to a situation that looks like less of an inflamed culture war and more of an appreciation for peaceful civil engagement on what are often challenging questions about what ought to be taught by whom and when? Uh, So that's sort of part one. Where do we go? How do we get there? Part two, for our, our teachers here joining us tonight, what are some of the things that they can do? both generally in their role, but then also thinking about as educators who might find themselves in a a state or in a district that is running up against these kinds of challenges. What sort of outlets do they have to be able to help things go right?
1: So I actually see a lot of hope right now in a lot of uh, momentum and organization around the precise thing you're talking about, which is not... let's censor them back, but let's figure out how to talk to each other. And I also think there is a tremendous opportunity um, to educate young people about freedom of speech, which we, it's very clear just from what we see on college campuses, that there has been a kind of erosion of that commitment, uh, an alienation from it, a um, sense that free speech isn't working for everybody the way it ought to in an equitable, just way. And so this is an opportunity to kind of revitalize for people the notion that freedom of speech is um important to them and that they ought to be a little less um, willing or eager to use, you know, to censor others. And that means knowing the difference between shutting an event down and engaging in counter speech. Um, you know, speaking back to, I think somebody put this in the chat earlier, speaking back to that which offends you with your own speech, et cetera, or just not going to the event or, you know, putting the book down if you don't want to read it, right? Um, you know, it's probably the simplest solution to most of this, right? Um, so I think that there's a real opportunity to um, kind of redouble our efforts around civic education and history education because I do think that the rising generation is going to um, see through some of the hypocrisy around this issue right now and that in that there is an opportunity to uh, create a a kind of future society in which people maybe are a, a little less eager to jump on one another in every direction. I can tell you in speaking to young people that many of them do not enjoy the kind of politics of, you know, ganging up on one another and bullying through social media, Uh, that many of them actually are, um, you know, seeking a space to talk about, you know, can they watch and critique Woody Allen rather than you know, we should never, you know, make those, we should never allow anybody to see those movies because of what he was accused of. You know, I and mean, there's a million examples of that, but that's just one. Um, so there's a real opportunity for teaching here. And that's what I would say also to teachers, which is, and I say this to teachers, I say it to librarians as I say it to professors, which is part of this really is a crisis of civic education on multiple levels. So it's not, you know, we've, a lot of people are out there saying the kids don't get free speech, et cetera, Um, but it's not just them, right? So, you know, I have had experiences in public libraries, um, talking with people who are on the, on the, on the other side of this issue who have not once considered that removing a book in a school is a freedom of speech issue. No one's ever said that to them. They don't hear that in the media. Uh, that's not how the issue is being spun. And so that is an opportunity in school districts, I would say, for people to get involved, you know, for teachers to, um, be, um. Uh, not beacons, you know, maybe like role models to like kind of encourage students to get involved on these issues, to encourage people to vote in school boards, and and to try as much to do so not in a partisan way, but in a principled way, you know, to say like I believe in education, I believe in reading, you know, these though that didn't used to be. Um, I believe in knowledge and teaching, like that didn't used to be a political statement. That was like what America thought was important. I believe in democracy, right? I believe in liberty, you know? I mean, all of these are complicated, but if we do not find a way to reintroduce these concepts, uh, we are at risk of losing something very significant. And, and I'll just say in my work, I have found it very useful to explain to people why it is that even in the difficult cases, we side with speech. You know, and that is a, just a very a powerful, handy phrase to think about, to use, to share um, and to talk to your neighbors about, because I do think as more people are seeing how much a very distinct but vocal minority is taking control, I do think more people will be galvanized to get involved. But my hope is that as they do that, um, they um, are getting involved in in ways that can be productive and not just sort of like a, you know, tit for tat, as I was saying before.
0: Thank you for that, Jonathan. I think it's particularly important, right? So, one of the things that we try and do with fear and what so many of our our teachers here tonight are passionately committed to is that idea of saying, how do we engage with a broad variety of ideas and viewpoints when it comes to challenging ideas and perspectives? And it's important that we step back for a second and talk a little bit about why that matters, right? It matters at the end of the day because ultimately there are really only a couple of ways you can settle differences in a plural society with lots of different perspectives. You can use force right? You can pass a law, you can command, you can insist, we will do things my way because my group happens to be in charge right now. Or you can do it peaceably. You can do it through the democratic process. You can do it through conversations and discourse and engagement and thinking, right? And so, so much about what we're excited to see is, yes, engage in the messiness, the messiness of speech and discourse. And that includes, and most importantly, teaching our students to engage in those conversations as well read hard books, to engage in different perspectives, to have things available to them as a mechanism of thinking and growing and learning. Uh, so I, the message that you've shared tonight is one that I think resonates very clearly with what it is that we're excited about with uh, the Sphere Project broadly and what so many of our alumni have told us they're, they're worried about in the classroom and the opportunities just the last couple of minutes that we have left, I wanted to turn it uh, over to you, Jonathan. Any, any final remarks that you have, any recommendations or advice you can offer to teachers, their students, or other things that you want to point them to in terms of resources that they consume to better understand the issue?
1: Well, I will say also just on what you were saying a minute ago, it's a real, th- this turns into a, a missed opportunity and um, uh, is going to turn young people off of our democratic institutions, right? So like young people who see racism in society and are know that they cannot talk about it in schools, are not going to be feel invested in things like schools, right? And government and civil dialogue, you know? They just going to be um more angry about the hypocrisy of that right and or to see politicians talking about free speech who are simultaneously not, in, not letting them read books um and somebody put the link to this this is a program we uh are operating right now with the brooklyn public library which is uh has uh students teens from around the country who are learning about the freedom to read and we're taking you know our program is really very much rooted in the freedom to read is part of the freedom to speech uh, freedom of speech and we are trying to help young people think about how to engage on this issue productively but when you hear the stories of the people the the young people who um you know are like you know i'm i'm a gay teenager in a conservative place and you know it's i have been shared like some of the stories i've heard that are a part of this kind of book manning moment are quite sad they're quite bleak and i do you know think that that um um, you know, just a great deal more empathy all around is, is a great complement to like a strong defense of freedom of speech. And so I would say, you know, if you, you know, teachers, you know, if you have students and you want to connect them to our work, uh, we have, uh, we do plan to continue to run these we run other online programs. Uh, for young people to learn about freedom of expression. We do stuff on human rights and freedom of the press. Um, We're doing one on artistic freedom. So we have a youth program that is engaging um, that you can find uh, information about us. And, you know, if any of you have, Uh, stories about censorship that's happening to you or you're looking for resources or help a local story that you know you are are, you want to share with us etc you can reach us at education at pen.org um and you can sign up for our newsletter about educational censorship and book bans and um you know we're really trying to um and and i really just want to say um we um you know, we are a nonpartisan organization, we have support, we have members who are across the political spectrum. And we really think about ourselves as very strongly rooted in principles, not the kind of politics of the day. And so although a lot of how our commentary is getting spun right now is like, you know, there's Ron DeSantis, and then there's, I don't know, the book ban, the people who are against the book banners, like that's the particular moment. But uh, I want to just stress that's not necessarily reflective of us, you um, uh, being a, a deeply partisan um, organization. We we really do try to be extremely principled uh, about these issues of uh, freedom of speech. Um, and I would say, you know, just in terms of other things that you can do, like, you know, running programs in schools for teachers or in public libraries, like for parents to learn about freedom of speech. What What is the freedom of students in... Um, uh, in schools, you know, what is, how how are parents educated about that, the difference between a high school and a middle school, you know, there's real opportunities, I think, that are being lost to just engage, to get teachers feeling respected in their communities, doing programs at libraries, doing things that get bring people together, run book clubs, you know, there's just a real need to reinvest in, I would say, community, literacy, um, engagement, education, knowledge, democracy, because it's all, it's all so deeply interconnected.
0: Jonathan, thank you so much for your time tonight. I really appreciate you joining us in the conversation. It's been fantastic to have you here. And thank you again for the work that you're doing. And I I will share from our our teachers a a great thanks for uh, taking the time to be with us and share your perspective with them tonight.
1: Thank you for being here. And I appreciate all the questions, very thoughtful comments in the chat. And um, I hope I responded to
0: all of them adequately. All right. Have a good night, everyone. Thank you, sir. Uh, up next, I'm very excited to turn the conversation over to my colleague, Elise Alter, our content development manager here for Sphere Education Initiatives, and uh, Stephanie Hasty, one of our alumni, and to use this as an opportunity to introduce some new resources for all of you when it comes to thinking about civil discourse in the ELA classroom and how you can start to bring all of these to bear uh, in your schools and what you're doing. Without further ado, Elise, let me turn it over to you and take us away.
2: Thanks, Alan, for that introduction, and it's such a pleasure to be with you all tonight. Really excited to see you here for this important conversation. Um, In like manner to what Jonathan was saying, we are at a pivotal moment where... In classrooms, K-12, to we have a unique opportunity to help students really develop and foster the skills around civility, to understand how to build healthy habits of conversation, to have these sensitive and challenging conversations with their peers, and to take that with them when they are out of the confines and the safety nets of the classroom into their real life, post-college, post-career, whatever it is that they end up doing. So that way they can have these Community conversations with respect um, as they go out through life. So, as we were thinking around, how do we best support and empower you as educators at any level that you are at, whether you are in the English classroom, in the humanities, uh, history classrooms, in STEM, whatever it may be? How do we help continue fostering for you and empowering you with resources that? Bring civil discourse to your discipline um with viewpoint diversity and really enriching resources and we believe that the english content that our alumni stephanie hasty has created for you around bringing civil discourse into the english space examining civil discourse through literature will be a really wonderful way for you to have these conversations with your students and develop these skills so without further ado i'd love to introduce our alumni educator stephanie hasty she is a seasoned educator in the english space in missouri she is currently teaching literary adaptations in english three she has worked on a variety of content pieces and resources most recently this unit that is a week-long unit on civil discourse through literature. So Stephanie, we're so happy to have you with us tonight. So um, one of the first questions that I have for you know, we've talked about um, why civil discourse is important, but I would love to hear from you in your own words, how do you define civil discourse and why is this essential in the English classroom? How does it look different within the English space compared to when we think of really history classrooms where we hear a lot of this happening?
3: When you're thinking about English classrooms, truly, you're thinking about that challenge space, like, like he was talking about earlier. There are so many books that are being challenged banned, talked about one kid's parent doesn't like it, and so the whole entire unit gets knocked out and so it's super, super important that um I believe that English teachers teach kids how to communicate about what it is they are reading and about what it is they are developing, not to um. some people might think not to give them ideas about what to think but to give them ideas about how to think um yeah so and so doesn't like the idea of this you're challenging that idea not the person who's saying that idea and there's so many pieces of literature that have so many challenges that it's super super important that uh kids understand and communicate about those books that they're reading um and civil discourse is just that it's um talking about topics and structures and systems and not about people. It's also about um, pushing back against things that cause others harm. I mean, I think a lot of times people think that civil discourse means that uh, I have to be a doormat. Well, that's not the case. You still say all the things that you feel and all the things that you know to be true from the space where you are. Um, I think the main part is, there are so many facets to a thing. Somebody, I said in that chat earlier, something similar to that, there's so many facets to a thing, and you can only see through so many lenses. So it's so important that we have other people who have those lenses, have different lenses, and we have conversations in class centered around books and around short stories, poetry, things of that nature.
2: Absolutely, and I think something that really resonates is this piece of you don't have to simply be a doormat when you're having a conversation. It's not about mere politeness. We need to ensure that our students understand the differences between discourse, dialogue and debate, right? They're not out to win an argument. They're not out to automatically change someone's opinion about something if they do that, that's a situation but it's not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is to build that mutual understanding to not have just mere politeness. and and to really get into the nitty gritty of whatever conversation and topic that they're having. And like you said, within the English space, dealing with books, especially that are being challenged, this is a really um, important time to address that. And, And you do just that throughout the unit that you develop. So I would love to just get a sense from you and to kind of give a little bit of a explanation to our educators that are on here tonight about Kind of what the unit um, unit's purpose is and how it can be used within the English space really within any English classroom and give everybody um, a little bit more information on that and I will also share my screen Thank so you. that way you can see the wonderful resources that we have.
3: I think it's um, important when you are teaching um, civil discourse within the, the frame of literature that you build community and you start from the very beginning, from day one, getting your kids, you know, your students to understand that we are a community and we are a community with diverse voices. And so there may be somebody um, who has a conservative or liberal viewpoint that they noticed something in a piece of literature that maybe you didn't notice. It's okay to have those conversations around that topic around that idea. And so we build um, that sense of community from day one. And then as you're reading literature, as you're processing through um, activities and what it is that's happening and going on, you're um, learning how you process and how you think to be able to communicate with others what it is that you're processing and thinking. Um, I think it's super important as a teacher as well to have a solid, clear idea of where you're coming from as uh, your what's your pedagogy, you know? Um, So you can then be able to share that with other teachers as well as the students in your classroom. And so we talk about um, building community through this activity called uh, Quilt Cordell that I got from a book and I don't remember the title of the book, but I could find it. And it's pretty much kids create identity posters And those posters um, are then shared in class and I have them hanging up. Like I'm looking at them right now because I'm in my classroom right now. I'm looking at the identity, um, what kids value and what kids like. And I've intermingled those things with aspects of Missouri and what it means to live in Missouri and be a Missourian. So then they're learning things like um, about Laurens Wilder, they didn't know, you know, kinds of things. And then I'm also incorporating things from the United States they didn't know, like Henrietta Lacks and things of that nature. So when kids are Walking around and doing gallery walk, looking at each other's cordels. They're also learning about things they probably haven't been taught, and getting a clearer picture of, well, frankly, their teacher, but also each other. And that's that's day one. That's how you start. <laughs> you know, um, they're building that. They start building that day one, and they come probably a weekish later to talk about it because you have to spend the next pieces kind of building that community and you build a community pretty quickly because you have text to read and you have poems to read and you have a test at the end of the year and so you want to make sure that that community gets built quickly and you do that through um, wagon wheel conversations you do that through ap style conversations like with tp cast and what have you but also simple things like windows mirrors and doors how am i approaching this text how am i looking at this text and then how is my neighbor looking at this text And what can I learn? Because they're looking at it as a window and I'm looking at it as a door to a new world I've never been to. I think that's super important.
2: Absolutely. And and I think that piece about building community, right? It prepares them for that future goal of, okay, they're gonna know how to have community conversations. They know how to bring their whole self. They know how to identify and understand perspectives of others and really be able to have those meaningful conversations. Um, When doing this, uh, can it be done really with any text Uh, and that is that is what the teacher needs to do at any point, even throughout the year. Um, What would you recommend?
3: I I like it. um, I like a whole text like a big class read that we're doing and then I like little pieces throughout eventually what would happen is by the second semester they're picking pieces and we're talking about like. um, Sometimes it's current YA and sometimes it's an article they read in a magazine or what have you. But in the beginning, it's led by me as a teacher and it's diverse based on like where we are. So sometimes um, I might use, i just noticed you pulled up my list. I might use a cup of tea because it talks about like class a lot um, by by Catherine Mansfield. But sometimes I might use the children's uh, story which is the one about the pledge of allegiance, you know, cause that's so, it was so, it's been so timely since like, I don't know, 2005. <laughs> and so it's super, it's super good to get the kids immediately into a conversation that has not just, and I, cause we're not team, right. We're not like team red and team blue. We are a whole entire country and we have so many facets that we cannot see them all. Right. And so like when you're reading the children's story or a cup of tea or um potato pie, you're reading a story from your lens, but also looking at it through other people's lenses and having conversations. So you're learning and you're grabbing and you're taking, you know, the core of you can stay, but you're adding pieces to the core of you. Um, And students are adding pieces to the core of themselves as well. You know, they're learning and becoming, and it's um, so important to have those conversations in class and give them space to have those conversations, which I don't think we do anymore. (laughs) No. (laughs)
2: <laughs> Absolutely, that's, that's where this resource, or this set of resources really comes in handy. And what I think is so beautiful about this, right, is let's say that as an educator, you're teaching AP Lit or um, you're teaching a new class that's just been uh, brought to your, your high school and you, you have to pick a book. You don't know exactly which book to, to pick and you're given some free reign if that is an opportunity for you, or maybe you're given a list, um, you don't know even so, some guidance on that. This provides a really exhaustive list for you of AP level works that can align with IB, fiction, nonfiction, short stories and poetry, right, because there is truly Mm -hmm. um, a lot of opportunity within poetry and haikus for students to engage in these conversations with and from really all across, like you were saying, the the, the spectrum of what makes our country beautiful, right, diverse texts and voices, um, really providing a space and a platform to amplify uh, many different viewpoints and perspectives. And then furthermore, kind of getting into opportunities to bring in media, um, videos, podcasts, uh, children's picture books, articles and essays, uh, art and photography that are all laid out for you so that way you don't have to go Digging for that, right? And there are links for you within these resources so that way you know exactly okay, I have to teach um, of Mice and Men or The Blue Side by Toni Morrison, and I really need a space, uh, a, a resource to go to that I can turnkey and really have my students engage thoughtfully in conversation around this and have a stepping stone um, just to show what these lessons look like. Um, and we will also send these out to you and uh, the links uh, post webinar um, so we can have access to them. But just to give you a sense, they are broken down each from the overview that Stephanie was um, reading from and then broken down by lesson with the first one of civil discourse getting to know you all the way through what it is to the activities that are um, helping really as they're you know scaffolding and kind of getting up there going through bloom's taxonomy to achieving really creation in their (laughs) ideas uh all the way to practicing getting into their quilt and ultimately culminating with the windows mirrors and sliding glass doors activity uh, providing them a really enriching experience very clear objectives for you as an Mm -hmm. educator to know kind of what you're doing what you need to be prepared for Stephanie lays this out really clearly for you um, so that way you know exactly what you need, materials. And I I would also say something that I would love for you to touch on too, Stephanie, is there's a lot of art involved within this, right? There's a lot of entry points for students to engage. It's Not just all about go sit after, after you've had this conversation or even before the conversation, write an essay on this and then go talk about it. Um... I would love for you to speak to a little bit of this interdisciplinary aspect because sometimes we forget the opportunity to bring in the arts into the classroom space and provide students a really great way of expressing themselves within literature.
3: The modern high school student is incredibly social um, in a way that I thought that I was social, I was wrong. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? They're incredibly social. Um, And then my 13 year old knows a lot of stuff, right? And so it's getting them to get off of their social platform and communicate this a lot of stuff that they know because they know everything i mean not joking they know everything (laughs) and and getting off that platform and talking to each other about the things that they know and how we do that we meet them where they are um where they feel comfortable and then we pull them into the the deeper conversations and definitely through art is the way to do that. Even even a kid who can't draw, can draw. Just like we we all can sing, we all can dance, we all can do art. And that's what we talk about in my classroom from the very beginning. We just did a piece today um, analyzing a self-portrait and then creating self-portraits, talking about our identities and uh, getting ready for writing autobiographies. And the kids were like, I can't draw. I was like, everyone can draw. They're like, well, this is me. That looks like you. Your eyes are not that buggy, but I think it's great the way that it is kind of thing. <laughs> um, getting, getting kids to feel comfortable. So we talk about out loud. I do the stuff with them um, because there are times when I will flub up, right? And I will do, I will say something or write something. I'll be like, that is not what I meant at all. So they can see in real time how I'm processing and how I'm thinking through the lesson. Or I also don't mind when kids, and you shouldn't mind really. When a kid says something that challenges your thinking, giving that um, space and communicating and debating Mm -hmm. through that. Um, When they see a piece of text that you're reading in a different way because maybe their grandmother um, was mentally ill or this and that, letting them have that space and then processing through art, through uh, flash writing so they can all uh, have a voice.
2: Absolutely, and I think what you said is a really poignant point around if a child or a teenager, whatever grade level you're teaching, challenges you, invite it, right? Like you as an educator don't have to know everything. Like it's it's impossible already for you to know everything. That's mm-hmm. that's not part of your role. You're there to help facilitate, right? To to, to know a lot to be a, a content expert in your in your field. But it's impossible to know exactly what the students may say in advance and, and to just you know mind read like that. And so this offers a really, I think what you said, a really good opportunity to to model for them how to have these conversations and how to respond. And as teachers, I, I'm a former educator myself, so we really are the people that the students spend the majority of their time with. Mm-hmm. They are learning and they're watching us all the time and trying to really ascertain How do i function within this world and i think that that's what this unit really does provide space for in the english space and and even in other disciplines right like if you are teaching a human um, a history class and you have to teach a text i know some history classes do that where they will have a text and then also the ela classes will be doing it or the same one it's a really good opportunity for collaboration Um, same thing for the arts that we mentioned Uh, one last question that that i have is any tips for differentiating this for maybe bringing it to a middle school level um, that a teacher could do? Um,
3: My main idea is whatever it is you're doing and however it is you're approaching the text, that you build that community first. You know your school, you know the people, you know the thing, and you know what they need to be able to succeed. Um, And so at the middle school level, maybe I spend more time on the quilt Cordell in class. So kids get comfortable sharing. Cause I know at the middle school level, again, 13 year old, they do great things, but they don't want to share it. Right. And so they get comfortable sharing that, that great thing. And they all cheer on each other um, because I want my room to be the room that is the community, you know that is the safe space. And I don't mean that like cliche I mean that for everyone. I had a student say one year, Thank you for letting me talk about, I know that you're not conservative, which I'm not, but I know that you're not conservative, but I, I thank you that you give me space to talk about. I'm like, well, you're not lying, you're not wrong. Uh, and there are so many facets to a thing. And he's like, yeah, exactly, exactly. You know? And I think it's super, it's, we don't do that enough. We don't affirm all beliefs and all thoughts. Um, and I think it's, we need to, unless those beliefs and thoughts harm others. And then we need to talk about why those beliefs and thoughts harm others. And I have a student, like even there's a senior I had, he came by the other day and he was like, I just said this thing, is it racist? And I was like, holy geez, wow. Yeah, it's a little, it's a touch racist. And he's like, why? And so we talked about, and he's a senior and I had him as a sophomore. We talked why, hey, if you knew this person personally, it wouldn't be racist. It would be something you saw. But since you didn't, and you're generalizing a population of people, that's uh, it's racist. And he was like, Thank you, because nobody explained that to me. They just said I was being racist, and I, I, I said I don't like that. I don't like that adult didn't help you through that. I don't like that your friends were like you're racist and walked off. That's not cool. You know, talk through it, right. and you'll find that honestly, people agree more with you more than you think.
2: Absolutely, we definitely, I think, have an opportunity with bringing civil discourse skills to help students understand that there is an opportunity for building mutual understanding across whatever the topic is. And, and as you were mentioning, right, like students come to us at any point in the day and it's important that we are there as models for them and to help them. Um, Stephanie, thank you so much for explaining all of the resources, bringing your insights to this conversation, especially paired with Jonathan's. Um, I hope uh, that you know, our, our, the educators that are on this webinar uh, you know, take this as, as a real tool to use in their back pocket and to know that they're supported and empowered uh, because something that is really special and fantastic about our sphere resources that everything is teacher informed teacher created teacher understood right with with expertise and really there to support you um that, that is our ultimate goal so stephanie thank you so much i know we are just almost out of time so i'm checking if there's any other last minute questions um around these resources, and I don't see any, but if anything does pop up, but um, please do put it in the chat. You know, we wanna take your questions in the last two or so minutes that we have. But in the meantime, thank you, Stephanie. And I will turn it over back thank to you, Alan.
0: Elise, Stephanie, thank you both so much. That was a fantastic conversation. I love these new resources. I love them because they really model a handful of things that are particularly important. One is this notion that civil discourse and talking about challenging ideas and engaging with, with hard conversations is not something that just happens in the social studies classroom. It's not just something that happens in your philosophy class. It happens where teachers work with students. It can happen with your sports team, it can work with your club, it can happen with your homeroom, it can happen anywhere. So thinking about yourself as an educator, first and foremost, and an educator who models that kind of civil discourse in what you do and how you approach your work is so critically important. So thank you, Stephanie, for for pulling that together and at least for for sharing some of those resources with us tonight. Last thing I threw in the, the chat is also a link to our, our, our recently created civil discourse primer that Elise took the lead on putting together for us. It's an incredible document. Please check that one out full of resources and ways of thinking about how to incorporate civil discourse into your classroom more broadly. With that, let's go ahead and wrap up the conversation tonight. I want to say just a couple of quick things of thanks. One, thank you all for joining us this evening. I know it can get late for these conversations, especially those of you on the East Coast who've been up very early uh, with the school day today and sticking around this late tonight. Uh, And for those joining us on the West Coast, making it here right after your school day wraps up. Thank you all so much. What I also want to emphasize is just how much we value the work that you're all doing when it comes to thinking about being advocates for free speech and civil discourse in this kind of an approach that says we can engage in challenging things, we can have hard conversations, and I look upon my role as an educator to equip my students to be advocates of that approach in the world. Finally, let me encourage you all, if you have not yet considered applying for Sphere Summit and you've been dragging your feet, don't hold back. Uh, Applications are open now. We'd love to have you join us this summer in Washington, D.C. if you can. I should also note we're going to be taking the show on the road. We'll be in West Virginia and Morgantown at West Virginia University at the end of March and the beginning of April. For those of you who can't wait, it should be a fantastic event with uh, really incredible people, including Jonathan Rauch and Nadine Strawson, some favorites from Sphere more broadly. With that We'll go ahead and wrap the evening. Thank you all. Have a great night. And looking forward to seeing you all soon at another webinar and another Sphere event. Take care.
3: Good night, everyone. We'll go ahead and close the event.